Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. Our text for this morning is verses 10 through 12, but uh, I'd like to get a running start at it, so we'll begin reading in verse 3. Uh, as you're finding your way there, let's stand together and we'll read, we'll read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12 together, and then we'll, we'll pray. First Peter one three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for this text. and We thank you for this occasion to consider it. We thank you for how your Holy Spirit has stirred us to worship this morning through prayer and fellowship and singing. And we pray that our, our attitude of worship would continue now as we hear the word preached. Lord, help us to worship you by listening intently and thinking deeply. Pray that your, your Holy Spirit would move us to great affection for Jesus and for this gospel that he has made ours. We pray that this, this text would give us a needed perspective on our current station. and That we would desire to live faithfully, and to walk in joy as we leave this place today. We, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I bet that if I were to ask for a show of hands... Asking this question, how many of us are struggling with self-pity this week? And even if everyone had an invisibility cloak and nobody could see you raise your hand, I think we might not have anybody raise their hands. Self-pity is something that most people are not going to cop to. And not because we're in self-denial, but self-pity is not something that is, is easily recognized in ourselves. But... 
if, if I asked, have you been plagued with thoughts like, man, why is this happening? Or why is this so hard? Or why, why don't these kinds of things happen to, to, to other people? Why, why does this always happen to me? There may be more people who would admit to that. Or if I asked, how many of you have looked longingly at other people's circumstances this week? You've looked at other people's situations, and by comparison, yours looks far worse. You prefer their problems to your problems. And then if I asked, how many of you have felt downtrodden by that? There may, have been, there may be some people who would admit to that as well. That attitude that, that I'm in the worst situation and others have it better than I do, and this is terrible, all of that, that, that has this, all the sounds and smells of self-pity. And self-pity is an occupational hazard for the elect exile. Our task as elect exiles is to be scattered in the world like seeds of the gospel. We're, we're to speak the good news, Peter teaches us. We're to live the good news, Peter teaches us. In a world that hates the God of this good news. And, and so the world hates us. We're, we're strangers, as Peter calls us in the very first verse. We're strangers, not just in the sense that we're weird, but we're strangers in the sense that we are hated messengers of a hated message. We saw last week in verses 6 through 9 that, that our conspicuous godliness in this world and our faithfulness to proclaim the message of the gospel, it brings upon us trials that test our faith. And we may be tempted to look at the world and see that the, the world is not suffering the same testing that we are. I mean, it's true that everyone in the world suffers in some way, but believers suffer uniquely. Believers suffer for righteousness' sake. We suffer for doing the right thing. And because we have hearts that are incompletely sanctified, we are susceptible to bitterness about that. You know, David notes numerous times in the Psalms, it seems that the wicked, the wicked prosper while the righteous are forsaken. And we may feel as if we have been forsaken. We know in our hearts, no, I'm, I'm not forsaken, but it feels like we are sometimes. In verses 10 through 12, Peter would like to give us some divine perspective on our situation. Remember the main message that he's pushing on us in this letter. It is, it is this, meet this testing of your faith by setting your hope on, on your future salvation and entrusting your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what is he doing in verses 10 through 12? Well, he's showing us that far from being singled out for extraordinarily poor treatment, we have been singled out for extraordinary privilege. We, we are blessed beyond any other beings in God's creation. We hold the gospel of salvation in all of its fullness, and that should cause us to cherish our station in this life and to gladly entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are privileged to be who we are and to have what we have. The apostle shows us this by three comparisons. Three comparisons. The first is that we are more privileged than the world. We're more privileged than the world. Look at, look at verse 10 again. He writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now Peter's picking up on the salvation mentioned in verse, verse 9 that we looked at last time where he calls it the salvation of our souls. 
refers to it as our living hope back in verse 3. It's our imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in verse 4. It's about that salvation that the Old Testament prophets searched and inquired carefully. Now, look, look with me carefully at, at the phrase, the grace that was to be yours. That's how he's talking about our salvation in this text, the grace that was to be yours. The most woodenly literal way to translate this from the original language would be the to you grace. The to you grace. The, the, the prophets who prophesied, they prophesied concerning the to you grace. And this to you grace is just another way of describing the salvation that he's been talking about since verse 3. The living hope, the imperishable inheritance, the future salvation, it is this to you grace. And by calling it that in this text, he is already beginning to communicate to us just how privileged we are. This is not merely grace, but it is to you grace. It, the implied is that this is grace that is exclusive to you. But to us as opposed to whom? Well, not as opposed to the prophets. He does not he doesn't mean that. The prophets were Old Testament believers, and he's he's addressing salvation. So these Old Testament believers in the coming Christ, they are partakers of salvation. So he doesn't mean that this is a to you grace and not to the prophets. What is he talking about? He's he means to you and not to the world. We've received this grace, not the world. And that, that may seem like, man, Pastor Greg, you're really making a mountain out of a Greek grammatical molehill here. We'll see in a second. It's obvious he's going to say that we're, we're more privileged than the Old Testament prophets. But is he really saying that we're more privileged in the world just with this phrase, to you, grace? Peter has this in mind, and it's going to come out more clearly very shortly. Turn with me over to chapter 2, where... where we can see his frame of mind coming out more explicitly. In 2.4, Peter writes about Jesus being a living stone. The very next verse, he says that, that, that we are like living stones. It's like we, we are part of this Christ. And then in verse 7, he says very explicitly, speaks of this privilege that's ours. 2.7, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So there's a juxtaposition between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer is privileged, honored to be a believer. The unbeliever stumbles as he was destined to do. It's a, it's a privilege to believe. It's a privilege to hold salvation. He explicitly is contrasting believers with unbelievers. This is in Peter's mind, okay? He, he is saying, this is the to you grace. It's not to everyone else. Don't you understand? This is exclusive to you. It's the to you grace. We, we, we do not deserve it any more than anyone else does. That we have received, it says nothing about us other than that God has graciously chosen to bestow it upon us. And when we realize what a wonderful thing is this, this imperishable inheritance and what a horror the alternative is, we should consider it a privilege all the more. You know, there are numerous times in the Psalms where we find a persecuted author wondering why his life is so much more difficult than the ungodly around him. And occasionally the Holy Spirit will move that author to give himself counsel, the author counsel, and to give counsel to us. And one of those places is in Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, the first three verses read this way. He says, Do not fret yourself because of evildoers, and do not be envious of wrongdoers. 
for they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and be faithful. We frequently find it tempting to envy the people in the world because of the apparent ease of their lives. We see that, that it, it, it is harder to be a believer in this world than to be an unbeliever in many senses. We suffer for righteousness sake. We do the right thing and suffer for it. But we should not be envious of evildoers. They will fade. And though there are not many people in this world who look at Christians and envy them, there will come a time when all of them will envy our eternity. So, so, so think about this. Do you really want what the world has? You really want to look at the, the world's circumstances, those who aren't suffering for righteousness sake, and say, man, I wish I was like them. Listen, even in their so-called prosperity, Paul says that they are without God in the world, Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, he's actually talking about us before Christ saved us, before he snatched us out of the darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Would you go back to that darkness? Think with me for a second about what you were, who you were, what you had, before Christ saved you. It was, it was that, that, that darkness that you wore as part of your person. Would you go back to that? Listen, that, that past from which you were rescued, that is the, the world's past and present and eternal future. We must never make the mistake of thinking that anyone is privileged above us. Believers in Jesus Christ have the only thing that is worth having, and that is Jesus Christ eternally. We are more privileged than the world. But, but then Peter, Peter begins to show us that we're more privileged even than the prophets. Clearly, we're more privileged in the world. We're more privileged than the, the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 10 again. He writes, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So it, it appears that though the Old Testament authors predicted the sufferings of Christ, which we would, we would include the, the verbal and physical persecution at the hands of, of the Jews and the Romans, his scourging, his crucifixion, his bearing the wrath of God on our behalf, they predicted his sufferings, they predicted his subsequent glories, which we, which we might include uh, his, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement at the right hand of God, his, his second coming, the final judgment, his eternal reign. The sufferings of Christ, his eternal and his subsequent glories, they predicted these things with key pieces of information missing from their understanding. I mean, they were, they were left with huge questions. For, for example, Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses was a prophet, and he prophesied the very first recognizable reference to the Christ in Genesis 3.15, where he recorded God saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, theologians have called that the first gospel. It's a promise that the seed of the woman would defeat the serpent and sin. And according to Peter, the Spirit of Christ himself moved Moses to write that. 
The Spirit of Christ was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the victory of Christ through Moses there. But, but we, we must ask, what did Moses understand about it, what he was writing? Well, not enough to answer two crucial questions. Who is this seed of the woman? And when is this going to happen? Moses has, is, has the, the privilege of delivering the first gospel, and he doesn't know who it refers to. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. Now, Moses also records all of those events of, of the Exodus and afterwards, all the instructions regarding the law and, and the sacrificial system, which the New Testament reveals to be all types and shadows pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus says in John 5.45, listen, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. All of that stuff that Moses wrote in the Pentateuch. All of it was about Jesus. And Peter indicates here in this first chapter, Moses knew he was predicting something significant. He, he knew that there's something more than just the surface level meaning of the text that he's writing. He knows that this is not just about lambs and bulls and goats being slaughtered. That's, that's not all that this is about. He, he's, he's conscious that there's something more to this. He knows that there's a seed of the woman coming. He knows there's another prophet coming. He knows that there's a greater priest, there's a greater sacrifice, there's a greater tabernacle. The exact shape of it, he does not know. He has the, he has the privilege of, of, of predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, but he knows nothing of who, who does this refer to? How is this going to happen and when? Moses is not alone. We, we, we may not think of David as a prophet, but Peter did. Peter told us in Acts 2 that David was a prophet. And there in Acts 2, Peter teaches that David consciously, consciously predicted the resurrection of the Christ in Psalm 16. So if you're familiar with the, the story of David, you may know that in 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David that he would have a son that would be placed on his throne eternally. And Peter says in Acts 2 that David understood himself to be writing in Psalm 16 about that son who turned out to be Jesus Christ. So David knew as he's, as he's writing Psalm 16, he's writing about some future king that will sit on his throne. He's writing about a resurrection that comes after his own death. He knows that Solomon is not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. He knows that, but he doesn't know who. He has no idea who. He has no idea when. David understood himself to be writing about things more significant than his own experience. Even in Psalm 22. Now I'm going to read some, some portions of Psalm 22 to you. And I want you to keep in mind that David wrote this. But it was the Spirit of Christ in him writing about the sufferings of Christ. Okay, this is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David gives so many details, so many details, that we have seen. We, we, we hear this, and we just follow the storyline. We see all of these things happening in Jesus Christ. To David, they are part of his own experience. He's writing about his own sufferings, and yet he is conscious that the Spirit of Christ in him is predicting something else. 
he has no idea who it is. No idea when it's going to be. He does not have the framework for understanding these things that, that, that we do. He doesn't, he doesn't understand a cross. He doesn't understand vicarious atonement or union with Christ. David had types and shadows. According to Peter, he longed for more. Think about all these other prophets, all, all, all these godly giants of the Old Testament recording the inspired words of the Spirit of Christ. Jeremiah writes about the righteous branch being raised up for David and, and, and Micah predicting the shepherd that would be struck and then his followers would be scattered. Hosea predicting a resurrection after three days. Jonah doing the same thing. Isaiah talking about scourging, stripes that would, that would heal us. He talks about vicarious suffering. That, that, that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 suffers on behalf of others. He talks about a resurrection there in, in Isaiah 53. They all have these, these bits and pieces. None of them has the full picture. None of them knows what the fulfillment of these things will look like. What they do know is man's problem. They've got that in all of its fullness. It's perfectly clear in the Old Testament that man is separated from God by his sin. He's completely helpless to change himself. He's under the wrath of God because of his many violations against God's law. And he's got a problem with his heart that he can't change. Only God can change it. And if you read these prophets, you'll see how some of them were just tortured by this. Tortured by this condemnation of sin in themselves and in the people around them. They're longing for redemption. And so think about how their hearts must have soared when what is revealed to them by the Spirit of Christ that redemption is coming. And they get these, these little pieces of information, these shadows, little things about this redemption. They know redemption is coming, but what? Who? When? Peter says they inquired carefully. They sought answers to these things. They must have prayed fervently to this Spirit of Christ. When are these things going to happen? Who are you talking about? They searched the Scriptures carefully. We know that the prophets read each other. Daniel read Jeremiah. We know they're reading each other. They're searching the Scriptures. They're clawing for the clearest picture of this hope. But look at verse 12. Look at 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What was the Lord's answer to the prophets as they're making this inquiry? This is not for you to know. This is not for you to know. Turn over to Romans chapter 16 with me, please, if you would. Romans 16. Paul is one of these mentioned in verse 12, who was then brought along to preach the gospel from these Old Testament prophets. And so Paul refers to the gospel, that, that gospel from the Old Testament, he refers to it as a mystery. He says it was kept secret for ages. In Colossians 2.2, Paul, Paul even says about this mystery that it is Christ himself is God's mystery. Jesus Christ, he's this great mystery, he's this great secret kept in the Old Testament, but now revealed. Look at, look at Romans 16.25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, in this benediction of, of Romans 16, Paul, Paul gives us this amazing truth. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, they were, they were predicted in the Old Testament, and yet the clear shape of it was kept secret intentionally for ages. But now, and, and by now meaning the church age, According to the command of the eternal God, the curtain has been pulled back on that great mystery. Oh, the blessing of living on this side of that, of that sovereign command. where We see what's on the other side of that curtain. That curtain has been pulled back. Listen, do you remember from John chapters 14 through 16 as Jesus is teaching us, teaching his disciples about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And one of the things that he said to them is that the, that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all the truth. He must have been speaking at least of this. He's going to show you what everything means in the Old Testament. And I believe that that's what we see happening in Luke 24, verses 44 and following. Listen to what Jesus says to the disciples. This is the risen Christ talking to the disciples in Luke 24, 44 and following. He says about everything that they've seen, the, 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 the crucifixion, the resurrection, all of that. He's saying, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gave the apostles the key to unlock this mystery. And, and beginning right then, they got it. And they began preaching it fully from where? Not from the New Testament Scriptures. They begin preaching it from the Old Testament Scriptures. They take the Old Testament prophets and, and they, they, they begin showing it like Peter does in Acts 10.43. He says, To Christ, to Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. I mean, P Peter starts to, to sound like Jesus. You know, Jesus says to these, in Luke 24, he says to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, oh, you foolish and, and, and slow to believe all that the prophets have said. Jesus is acting like, this is so obvious that this is true. Well, it's obvious now in Christ. And Peter and Paul and all the rest of the apostles, they begin to act like, yes, this is obvious. They begin preaching Christ from the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 3, Peter says, God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Listen to how Paul characterizes his own preaching in Acts 26. Acts 26, 22 and following, Paul says this, To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the great and small, listen to this, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And what did the prophets and Moses say would come to pass? Here it is. He says that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to be raised from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. 
See, the, the, the apostles, by the Holy Spirit, they took the writings of these Old Testament prophets, to whom all of this was, was a mystery. They took those writings and they held them out to us and say, look, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God did not give it to the prophets to understand fully the things that they wrote. But he gave it to the apostles who explained it to whom? To you. To us. Now let's go back to verse 12 in 1 Peter 1. Real quick. Gra grammar, grammar is important. Gra grammar is so important and exciting. I, I wish more people cared about it deeply the way we nerds do. It's just, grammar makes life full. Just a fullness, the fullness and joy of grammar. I want to write a book, write a book about it. Translators, translators of, of our, our, English, our English Bibles, they do things all the time with the Greek text to make it more readable. And that's fine, that's what they should do because, because we don't use the same syntax that, that the, the ancient Greeks did. And so to make it where we can understand it, they have to do these things, okay? But I find that at times, when you know what the underlying grammar is, it can give a picture that is a bit more fruitful and helpful to understand what is being communicated. Now, I won't get into direct objects and indirect objects and all of that stuff, but let me just give you another way of, another way of translating this that would be much more literal, not quite as pleasing to the ears, okay? But he, he, here, here is how I would translate this. It was revealed to them that they were serving not to themselves, but to you, the things that have now been announced to you. It was revealed to them that they were serving not to themselves, but to you, the things that have now been announced to you. Now, to, to the grammar nerds, you've noticed there that there's just a difference of you're switching a, a direct object for an indirect object. That, that's what's happening here. But, but to the rest of you who are not nerds, what, it's just that what is being served is not people, but the message. A message is being served to people. Now, now why, why is that important? It's important because it, it, it's like they were serving a gift or, or, or a meal to someone. They, 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 they have been given something. They've been given a gift that is to be served to someone, not to themselves. I believe that's in a sense what the prophets are being told. Look, you've, you have been given a feast, and in a sense, you've participated in the preparation of that feast. The feast being the predictions of Christ and the subsequent glories. But that feast, that feast is not for your consumption, but it's for a later generation. And, and who is that later generation? Us. Us. Peter, Peter says, to you, three times in verse 12. They were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news to you. How, oh, goodness. The, the, some of us feel downtrodden. Some of us feel downtrodden and tempted to self-pity. But, but David and Moses and Hosea and Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, all the others. These great men of the faith. They girded themselves, much the same way that Jesus did when he washed the disciples' feet. They girded themselves, and they served to you a meal that they themselves did not eat. These giants of salvation history 
served you and walked away. You know, we, we, we tend to think, well, Isaiah prophesied for the benefit of, of ancient Judah and Hosea prophesied for the benefit of ancient Israel. They served their message to their contemporaries. And we try to get into that historical setting to understand the real meaning of what's being said in, in any Old Testament prophecy. Listen, in an immediate sense, yes, Isaiah wrote to Judah and Hosea wrote to, to Israel, but... Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says here, ultimately, they served you. You were the audience intended for Isaiah and Hosea and all the other prophets. Their contemporaries, ancient Israel, ancient Judah, they didn't eat the meal served to you. Oh, the astounding privilege it's ours to hold this thing. Christ in all of his fullness. They longed to eat this food. They so long to, to taste it, but it was for us. And so here, here really is what Peter's trying to get at. It's what Jesus said to, to him and the, the, the other disciples in Matthew 16. This is, this is what we might say a, a, a divine paraphrase of what, what Peter's getting at. This is from Matthew 16, I mean Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17. Jesus says this to the disciples. I think this is what Peter is trying to communicate to us. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, in that text where Jesus is talking to the disciples, he is he's explaining to them the privilege that's theirs to hear him speak the parables clearly. The parables were intended to conceal information from everybody but the disciples, but the disciples hear this interpretation. But as Jesus says this to them, blessed are your eyes, your ears, you, you see things, you hear things that everybody else doesn't. He's not just talking about the interpretation of the parables. He's talking about him. You, the, the, the prophets and righteous people in the Old Testament, they, they didn't just long to hear the interpretation of parables. They wanted to see Christ. They wanted to know who it was. Listen, do you know what David would have given just to hear the words, his name will be called Jesus. Jesus is the name of that son that's going to sit on your throne. How, how Moses would have shouted for joy just to hear the words, in the days of Herod the king. Or how, how Malachi's heart might have leapt had he just heard 400 years and he will come. 400 years and he will come. Malachi's never going to last that long. He's never going to live that long. But, but at least he knows. He knows when. We know his name. And we can point back to a day we could trace all these things through their writings in a way that they could not at the time because of the help now given through the Holy Spirit-inspired writings of the apostles. We are more privileged than the prophets themselves. Now, we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves occasionally here at Providence, and some of us are in the habit of doing that. We, take, we, we, we think deeply about the gospel and what it means to us. Do you understand that that's a tool not available to the prophets themselves? They didn't, they didn't have these things. They, they don't understand a cross. They don't understand fully atonement and, and justification and sanctification, all, all of that stuff that, that we, 
we take for granted and then pity ourselves because we are in a worse condition than our neighbor who has something that we don't have. We are more privileged than the prophets themselves. We have the gospel in all of its fullness applied to us in all of its fullness. Peter would also have us to know, he's not done. He wants us to know that, look, you're more privileged than the angels. <laughs> this is insane. You, you, we are more privileged than the angels. And we get this from the latter part of verse 12. These things served to us by the prophets and made clear by the apostles who preached the gospel to us. These things are things into which angels long to look. Angels. Angels walk and talk with God. We, 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 we pick this up in various places in, in, in the Bible. They, they walk and talk with God. They have participated in His plan, as far as we know, at least as early as Genesis 3. They've, they've been working for Him, doing His will, enjoying His presence. They serve as His messengers. They, they see and hear and do extraordinary things in God's kingdom. Let me just give you one example. One example. If you're taking notes, write down 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32 details the invasion of Judah by the king of Assyria. And this king of Assyria was a guy named Sennacherib, just a total jerk. I mean, as arrogant as the day is long. And so he marches his army up to Judah and says, Look, nobody's going to save you. Yahweh's not going to save you, just like the gods of all the other nations didn't save them. And on paper, it would appear that he was going to be right because um, Judah is this tiny, weak thing, weakened by sin and war. Assyria is the enormous world superpower of the day. But listen to Second Chronicles 32, 20 and 21. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. Just one, just one angel to deal with that, that, that world superpower at the time. Just sends one angel. Now, I prefer the parallel passage in 2 Kings 19 because it gives a little bit more detail. 2 Kings 19 gives us details like exactly how many warriors and commanders and officers this one angel killed in one night. It was 185,000 Assyrians. 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Listen to 2 Kings 19.35. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the, of, of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Now, we, we don't know how the angel did this. He may, have had a, he may have had a way that he just kills them all just instantly. But, but let's... Um, Let's just be generous with this and say that he did it one at a time, okay? The math on this is, is, is interesting. If, if uh, this, they got up early in the morning and it's just dead bodies everywhere. If we're generous and we give him eight hours to do this, he killed 23,000 Assyrians every hour of those eight hours. 23,000 every hour. That's 385. Just think of, just try to picture 385 people that's how many this angel would have killed every minute of the night. He would have killed more than six every 
second. Again, we don't know if he just killed them all at once. We don't know. The point is that this, this is the kind of work that angels have done. This is the kind of thing that they've seen. Now, why would I bring up 2 Chronicles first that doesn't have all of that detail? I brought up 2 Chronicles first because I wanted to point out that one of the two accounts of this amazing event doesn't even record the most striking details. I mean, 2 Chronicles makes it sound like this is just kind of routine. If it, if, it, if it were me, if I was writing the whole Bible, there would be some reference to that in every book of the Bible. Even Philemon. If I was Paul writing Philemon, if, if I was the Holy Spirit, Paul would have written, look, look, look forgive Onesimus, okay? Forgive Onesimus. And, and by the way, don't forget that great story about that angel killing 185 Syrians in one night. That was amazing. I'd be talking about that all the time. I mean, to, the, to, to me, the fact that it's in 2 Kings, it's not in 2 Chronicles shows that this is not a big deal in the spiritual realm. This is a, this is a day at the office for an angel. So, so here's the question that I would have you consider. How do you impress an angel? What causes an angel to stop and stare? By what? By what is an angel mesmerized? Well, Peter identifies something for us here, doesn't he? These magnificent beings are mesmerized by our salvation in Christ. Ours. And it's ours, not theirs. Did you know that? Angels are spectators of grace. They are not partakers of it. There are elect angels. First, First Timothy 5.21 tells us that. So elect angels, and then there are fallen angels, which we call demons. The angels mentioned here would be elect angels. They're holy beings. They're not sinful. They haven't fallen. So they have no need of saving grace. But even if they did... It would not be given to them. God has made no provision for the salvation of fallen angels. They have no opportunity to be saved from their sins. Only man, only man, only man can be the recipient of the grace of God. Only man is made in the image of God. Man is afforded a relationship with the Almighty that even the angels are not. They certainly, they love God, they worship Him. Angels do not partake of Christ. They do not call God Father. He does not call them sons. They, they know nothing experientially of union with Christ. Hebrews 1.14 tells us that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of who? Those who will inherit salvation. So they're, they're servants of God. They minister to the church. As far as partaking of gospel things, they're spectators. Now we need to be careful with, with this because they, they are holy. There is no sinful envy in their hearts. So we ought not conceive of them as, as having some kind of envious longing. They wish they were us. That, no, we should not go that far. But we, we, we can say they are fascinated by this great grace that is ours alone. So, so even with all that they've seen and heard and done, they are eager to watch these things unfold in us. We are more privileged than the angels. Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that it is a pitiable thing to be an elect exile of the dispersion because it is not. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ was not raised, we're dead in our sins. And at the end of this life, there is no hope. And that moves him then to write in verse 19, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ then we have hope in this life only, 
then we are of all people most to be pitied. But listen, Christ has been raised. And so we should never think of ourselves as pitiable in this life or or, or the next, certainly. We are not pitiable. We are partakers of Christ in a way that those headed for destruction never will be. We, We are recipients of the fullness of revelation in a way that the prophets themselves longed to be and were not. And our hope and salvation is is of such a magnificent splendor that it holds the angels themselves spellbound. Of all beings, of all beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth, we, elect exiles, are most privileged. This should move us to rejoice. As we will see in the next text, it should move us to live conspicuously holy lives. Let's pray together. Father, your word is so rich and generous. You're so generous to us to give us texts like this. We, in our incomplete sanctification, we we, we tend toward pitying ourselves for this and that. Look at our station as believers and how difficult it can be. And we think, oh, what it would be like to not have this trouble or that trouble. And then you open your word up to us in a text like this and show us We are of all people most privileged. Of all beings most privileged. I pray, Lord, that this this text, these truths, this perspective would rule in our minds and hearts. That even as we are assailed by trials, our confidence in this hope would not be assailed. That it would not succumb to doubt and would not succumb to self-pity. but that we would would see what we have in Christ and how privileged is our station and that we would be moved to a life of intense gratitude and love for Jesus, love for you, Father, and that filled with the Holy Spirit, we would be moved to a life of conspicuous godliness so that you are glorified in these things. Would you do these things in us, Father? Would you do that, please? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.